The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So for the last few weeks, we've been exploring the topic of wise intention, the second factor of the Eightfold Path. And um, just a little bit of a kind of context for the piece of wise intention I want to review today or talk about today. So, you know, intention is um, kind of what what makes us act, what makes us move from our thoughts and our mind into things that we do. And those um, intentions, the things that uh, make us act, are shaped by our views, shaped by what we believe, by what we think, And so if we think, if we believe that, um, you know, happiness comes from getting what I want, getting more money, getting more um, things in the world, having certain status in the world, if if that's our belief that that's where happiness comes from, then our, our motivations will be shaped by that, our intentions will be shaped by that, and we'll form actions, you know, intentions that will encourage us or support a movement in that direction to try to find happiness based on those those views, those beliefs. And um, the Buddha, in his exploration, in his search, um, was curious about what might be, actually happiness was his interest, you know, what might be the deepest kind of happiness that's possible? But he went about that question from looking at, you know, why do human beings suffer? And this is kind of a general, um, almost principle that comes to us in our, in our practice, that we can... Um, look at something or look at a quality of mind or something that we're hoping to move in the direction of happiness or patience or kindness and um, kind of get curious about what's in its way. And so this is, this is kind of the perspective the Buddha brought here. Is he, he wanted to move in the direction of happiness and in his understanding Suffering was basically in the way, and so he got curious. Well, is it possible to be free of suffering? And his understanding, or part of, and so this is this was really his exploration and the Four Noble Truths, his uh, kind of the the understanding that's expressed as being um, what the Buddha understood in his own mind is framed in terms of suffering that first of all there is suffering and that the kind of, that, that there's you know there's different kinds of suffering and so there's a kind of suffering that perhaps we might think of as just 
you know, the suffering of our physical body, you know, unpleasant experience in our physical body. And, and that is a form of dukkha, uh, the, 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 the dukkha of unpleasant sensation. Dukkha Vedana is what that's called in Pali, the the dukkha of unpleasant sensation, the suffering or the pain of unpleasant sensation. But that that kind of of suffering, the Buddha said, well, that's going to be with us. You know, we've got physical bodies, and so, yeah, we're going to experience that kind of pain. So he was looking not to somehow transcend that, but the kind of mental distress that we have. And so this piece, he said, the mental distress that happens for us in his own exploration, his own um, journey, he found in his mind that this mental distress is rooted in ignorance and craving. Craving being this, of this kind that I just spoke about, the kind of craving for happiness that comes from getting something that I want or getting rid of things that I don't like, this, this kind of trying to navigate the world by, by controlling, we think, controlling this pleasant and unpleasant aspect of experience. And he pointed to a kind of deeper happiness and peace that's possible when we... Um, you know, let go of the kind of the neediness around that arrangement. The neediness about having what I want, getting rid of what I don't want. And uh, a kind of a coming into a, an alignment with the truth that pleasant and unpleasant happens to us. And, that, and to me this points too to that quality of allowing that I spoke of in the guided meditation. You know, allowing pleasant to be there not holding on to it, not, not trying to keep it, but its nature is to arise and to pass away. Likewise with unpleasant. Unpleasant arises and not trying to push it away, but also not holding on to that either. I, I found surprisingly for myself that I did tend to hold on to unpleasant experience to try to get rid of it, paradoxically. And so this kind of movement, this push-pull, is one of the main views that uh, we tend to hold as human beings, that we'll be happy if we can navigate and create the conditions of not having unpleasant and having pleasant. And so the Buddha, in his, his journey, found, well, a different view might be helpful. Maybe one around letting go of craving for that uh, that form of happiness. And in that journey, in that exploration, he, he, he discovered for himself, he, he, he told us, he discovered for himself, letting go of craving is a much deeper kind of happiness. It's a much more uh, reliable kind of happiness to be found. Now, it is... Um, this this understanding, this expression of of um, not wanting, not pushing away the unpleasant, not holding on to the pleasant, um, not fighting with pleasant and unpleasant. Sometimes we might hear that and think that means we're not supposed to do anything or not supposed to take action about pleasant and unpleasant, and that's not what it means. And so that's a it's a subtler understanding around pleasant and unpleasant. An understanding that that 
uh, honors and respects and reflects kind of what's helpful, what's, what's skillful in terms of leading us to letting go of craving. That kind of experience is meant to be cultivated. And so beautiful qualities, wholesome qualities of mind, very pleasant qualities of mind, such as joy, peace, happiness, these qualities are meant to be cultivated. And not meant to be held on to, but meant to be, meant to be finding ways to support conditions where those things are, are encouraged. And things that, that lead us away from suffering, away from happiness towards suffering, things that lead us in that direction of, of struggle, those things are meant to be released to create the conditions for releasing them, not by repressing them or pushing them away, but by beginning to understand that they're not actually helpful. Largely the reason we hold on to those, that, that motive of pushing away the unpleasant is because of the view that's, mo- that's informing us, the view that in order to be happy, I have to get rid of this thing. I have to, to find a way to not have this. And also I think an important thing to recognize is that this... Um, uh, this whole teaching is encompassed in a field of ethics and compassion. And the entire Eightfold Path has that, has that kind of a frame that it, it operates within. And so um, if we are living a life, living our lives and see that either we or other people are engaging unethically in a way that's creating harm or suffering. There's an encouragement to act out of compassion, not out of hatred, out of compassion to alleviate that suffering. And so this isn't an eightfold path that recommends sit in stillness and just notice pleasant and unpleasant and don't do anything about it. That's not the teaching. In fact, when we continue in the Eightfold Path and get to the middle three aspects, the Buddha brings in very clearly how, how do we speak? What is, what is right speaking, right acting, right living? And so that, that is, is definitely brought into our whole practice. And the intentions that are shaped by this kind of wish or desire to move away from suffering, to release the craving. The intentions that are shaped there support right speaking, right acting, right living. And so the whole aspect of intention is, is beginning to shape our choices, shape our actions in more wholesome ways. So the... Um, the intentions are shaped by this wish to be free from suffering. And in that regard, the, you know, given that we, um, if that's our motivation or that's our, our direction is to, to not suffer ourselves and not contribute suffering to the world, then motivations that would be helpful there would include kindness and compassion. So the three, the three um, 
intentions that are pointed to in right intention are renunciation, we talked about that a few weeks ago, letting go of this pull, this push-pull around the pleasant, unpleasant. Then there's um, the the intention of non-ill will and non-harming. Those are the other two. And I started talking about the intention of non-ill will last week and um, didn't quite finish, and so I wanted to continue that. So last week I talked about kind of this, uh, earlier I mentioned, you know, with um, cultivating something. So if we want to cultivate wholesome intentions, we want to cultivate non-ill will. I mean, so non-ill will is the way it's framed in the teachings. And the Buddha often spoke in the negative in terms of, um, you know, refraining from and letting go of so the, the freedom that the Buddha offers is not framed in terms of what we get. It's framed in terms of what's released. And, and in my um, understanding and in my experience around this, as these things are released, very naturally, some beautiful, wholesome qualities arise. And so as we release ill will, there is room and very naturally the quality of metta, of loving kindness, begins to be available to us. And so, you know, if we want to cultivate this quality of loving kindness, one of the first ways to do it is to begin to explore, well, what's in its way? Well, that ill will is in its way. And so that's what I spoke about last week, really, is how to work with that side of it. How to, how to explore um, noticing that we have ill will, you know, because we do. So the um, practice or the inc- encouragement towards wise intention of non-ill will would not be noticing ill will and then having ill will to get ri- to about that Ill, Ill will. That would, that would not be what the instruction is. And so the, the noticing of ill will is itself, you know, the, again, it's just like this kind of middle path the Buddha spoke about. There's a big difference between picking up ill will and acting out of it, kind of believing it and following through on it, and noticing ill will and recognizing, oh, this is what it's like to be experiencing ill will. When I, when I first kind of began to understand this, it was, it was not obvious to me that there was a big difference between those two. But playing with it, exploring it, it, it actually became clear pretty quickly you know, when I heard the teaching, it's like, well, I don't see how that works. But when I started actually exploring it, within a few weeks, I began to understand that difference. And so that, uh, that cultivating of the intention of non-ill will can begin by looking at where ill will is happening. And so that's, that's the piece we talked about last time. 
And um, another way or another exploration around um, cultivating non-ill will is to look at that quality which it kind of is heading in the direction of, the quality of loving kindness, the quality of metta, and exploring what might be uh, active cultivation of that quality. So we do, we can cultivate that quality by uh, letting go of ill will, of being mindful of ill will, but we can also more directly cultivate the quality of kindness itself. And so that's what I'd like to explore today. So this quality of metta, the, f- the word metta in Pali is connected to the word for friend, mita. And so really it's, it's based in the word is, we often translate it as love or loving kindness. But it, the word is based in a very simple kind of caring and friendliness. And so that's, that's, that's a place to begin, is recognizing just the simple care and simple friendliness that we experience. So this quality of metta, of, of loving kindness, has a quality of feeling connected, of caring, of kindness, friendliness. The... Um, the quality that's offered or that's pointed to by the Buddha is of an unconditional kind of kindness. It's not a kindness that is a kind of an exchange. It's not looking for something in return for kindness or in return for caring. It's a simple expression of connection and a wish for well-being for ourselves and others. And so it connects us to others, this quality, but it also connects us to ourselves. And I think this is important to recognize and and remember. Um, Often in terms of thinking about being kind, we may, um, maybe culturally, you know, we think about kindness to others, but, but don't necessarily remember to be kind to ourselves as well. And the Buddha all often encouraged looking at our actions, looking at our, uh, our minds in terms of are we being um, caring of ourselves and others both at the same time. So to not forget that we also deserve that kindness. And so this quality is the foundation really for that connectedness, that caring, is the foundation for other qualities that um, well, other related, other related heart qualities. And so when we have that sense of connectedness and caring, either for ourselves or for others, when there is, um, when we experience or when we see suffering happening in the field of that connection, the heart kind of responds with a, a kind of a, a quivering of compassion 
And so when that open-hearted connection meets that suffering, it will respond with this quality of compassion. And if in that connected field there is um, joy and uh, success, delight, then that heart also responds in kind, kind of resonates with that joy. And that's mudita, a sympathetic joy, empathetic joy. We could call it appreciation. And uh, internally we might experience it as, as gratitude, happiness, joy. So it's a beautiful quality, and we do feel it at times. And so this is one of the things that we begin, at least for me, it was important to begin to recognize when this feeling of caring and connection was happening. And so this is one of the simple ways to begin its cultivation. Just notice when it happens. This takes a little bit of attunement I found at least, I mean, our, our minds, and, and I, I heard something on some online talk <laughs> about the way our minds work. I don't know, I don't remember who was giving the talk, so I can't speak to the reliability of the source, but there seems to be a kind of sense that our organism is kind of predisposed to looking to what's wrong you know, kind of orienting to the tiger in the bushes kind of thing, you know, to, uh, to make sure we're safe. And so we, we may not tend to notice what's right or what's beautiful as much as we tend to be gravi- gravitate to what's difficult or unpleasant or challenging. And so for myself, I found this to be true. And, and that when I began recognizing, oh, right, okay, I can, I can recognize when this feeling of caring and connection arises, in small ways even. You know, a way of, you know, feeling a connectedness. At one point I was um, in a museum store, and in that uh, museum store I saw this little thing that I thought of um, the daughter of a friend of mine and thought, oh, that would be so, she would really appreciate that. And immediately my mind threw up the idea of something like, well, oh, it's a lot of money and, oh, you know, I haven't talked to that friend in a long time. It'd be really weird if this thing just arrived out of the blue. And so my mind threw up all these ideas why I shouldn't, shouldn't follow through on that. But I was actually having a practice of recognizing that connectedness and recognizing when those, those spontaneous movements of connection arose. And so I decided to follow through. And that begins to cultivate that quality when we notice it and follow through, respond. The noticing of it itself cultivates it. And then the following through also, is a, it supports it. So that's one, one piece about cultivating, um, cultivating this quality in terms of relationship. That's that, the way I talked about it was in terms of relationship. Notice when it ri- arises with our friends, with our um, families, 
when we have that feeling. And again, because we, we are complex human beings, we'll also notice when we have these kind of counter feelings of, of resistance and of, um, well, why did that person, why did my, my friend have to do that thing? You know, so we'll have those counter movements. But when we feel that connection, recognize it, appreciate it. And then also in terms of our own uh, experience. What does it mean to cultivate that quality towards ourselves or recognize it for ourselves? This one um, we can explore very directly in the meditation practice. That, uh, again, the, the allowing that I pointed to in the guided meditation, that quality of allowing, of opening to our own experience without the kind of push-pull around, oh, I don't want this, oh, I want to hold on to this. But just noticing, you know, this is what's coming up. This is what's here. Everything that arises in meditation can be allowed. And then we do, as I've spoken about recently, I believe, we do have to take care in that allowing because sometimes we can't, simply meet something with an allowing mindfulness. You know, sometimes our minds are not quite ready for that because whatever it is that's arising can't, sometimes things can be very, very sticky. And uh, a lot of tentacles from our past will come up and kind of pull us out of the present moment. And so, you know, we, we need to respect and, and honor when it is that we can allow something and explore that allowing quality. And when it is actually the most compassionate thing to do, the most connected thing for ourselves to do, to recognize, wow, that's really sticky. I need to step aside from it. And so these are, this is actually, this, this practice of, of noticing this is cultivating this quality of kindness for ourselves in our meditation. And so c- if it can be allowed, noticing the allowing itself that, that for me was a, a kind of a later piece in my meditation. I was, I was, you know, I got really good at being interested in whatever was going on, but wasn't actually attuned to the quality of allowing in the mind. And when I started looking at that, I saw, well, there was actually quite a bit of greed and aversion <laughs> in how I was going about paying attention. And so that was helpful to see. And then I began to recognize that there were times the, you know, the mind could just simply be with something. And when that happens, it's like, oh yeah, this is just this. There's interest perhaps, curiosity, and allowing the mind to kind of step back and notice perhaps that balance of mind that's okay with something being there. In that very okayness, you might recognize a sense of connection with yourself that has that flavor of kindness and love. And so the the practice of mindfulness itself, when we explore it through the, I, I some, the, the, the language that my teacher Sayadaw Tejaniya uses is checking the relation, checking the attitude, checking the relationship to how we're paying attention. There's what we're paying attention to and there's kind of how we are with that. 
And I got really good at being with stuff, but not really knowing how I was with it. And when I began kind of stepping back to that, that was a new um, deepening of the practice. And at first, the, the, the recognition was in that kind of mode of noticing what was a problem. Like, oh, wow, there's a lot of aversion and noticing stuff here. And, and, and yet, um, as, I, as I began to explore more and more, I did find those times when it was balanced, when the mind was interested, and began to, to kind of recognize the, so, the many flavors of kindness that can be in the mind when it is able to meet just what's happening. And so this is another way, because being mindful of being aware of these wholesome qualities, being aware of kindness, supports its cultivation. And what I found in my own uh, practice was that there was a lot of kindness that was happening, a connectedness that was happening, that I just was missing. And so the, there was, I, I was missing the opportunity to support it by noticing it. And as I began to get familiar with it, both in relationship to family, friends, my external relationships, but also in connection with my relationship with myself, it began to strengthen. So there's that kind of Noticing it when it happens. Then there's a kind of a more, um, uh, we can call it more intentional inclining of the mind towards metta. And this, this can happen in, in a couple of different ways. There's the, the most common way is through the formal metta practice itself, which I'll speak about briefly in a moment. But another way Again, it, it relates to, um, to mindfulness, but it's, uh, it's basically with that intention of kindness in our hearts. You know, sometimes with our, um, the way that we uh, think about how we engage in the world, you know, we, we, we feel like, you know, we need to be honest in terms of how we act in the world. And if I'm not feeling something, then to act as if I were feeling it, we sometimes feel like that's dishonest or it's not truthful. And um, what I'd like to propose is a kind of maybe a revising of that perspective. When we, um, so the way intention works, and we're speaking about intention here, right intention. When we um, have an intention in our hearts, you know, if we act out of that intention, even if we're not feeling it, you know, so we can potentially connect to what the intention is, not what's just simply kind of happening right now, but what's our deeper intention? When we act out of that intention, and so if we want to act with kindness, even if we're not feeling kindness, 
if we're if we want to act in a way that that um, where we're connected with that intention towards kindness, and so in a, in a way, kind of modeling what we think a kind person would do in this situation. If we're doing that with two things happening, one, not repressing the feeling of non-kindness that's there. So that's one piece of it. And two, with acting with the intention of supporting the movement in the direction of kindness. So this... uh, you know, this kind of, this is a a form of practice that I've used for wholesome qualities at times when I've seen certain wholesome, unwholesome qualities being kind of predominant in my mind, then I would choose to pick up the practice of acting as if I were, in the case that I was exploring, patient. Acting as if I were patient. But not repressing the feeling of impatience at the same time. And so that's a kind of a tightrope to walk a little bit. But if we explore this, this kind of a, of a practice, if we explore this, then um, what happens there is that, you know, the, the, um, the intention, if we're, if we're connecting to that intention, then that intention is being strengthened, and then the action out of that intention, if we are acting in that way with the intention of cultivating that quality, it's like that action, that intention and that action have a rebound effect on the mind. They actually begin to support that quality to come, to arise. I've told this story a number of times, but it was so striking to me when I explored this um, around impatience. I was exploring impatience in many, many ways over the course of a couple of months, and so I was getting really familiar with the feeling of impatience as it arose. And one day in the in the grocery, in the, in the, it was in the drugstore. I was, you know, wandering through the drugstore, and I, I noticed that I was impatient, and. Uh, this was actually, and this is one thing to, to recognize too, is not only noticing the feeling, but noticing how it affects us. And so in this case, the impatience wasn't particularly affecting other people, as far, I mean, as far as I could tell, because nobody else was in my view. But I was picking things up off the shelf and kind of throwing them in my basket. You know, so it was, it, there was, a, there was the, the kind of quick movements of my body that this impatience was manifesting with. And as I noticed that, I noticed the impatience and I noticed how it affected me physically. I chose to not ignore, to to fully acknowledge that feeling of impatience, but slow the movements down. To act as if I had all the time in the world. Picking things up very carefully and placing them into my basket carefully. And it was like within a minute that the experience was impatience vanishing and patience arising in the mind. It was a very direct feedback on how the acting out of intention 
And it's and in some ways it can be what sometimes I call this practice the not letting the the um, the difficult or the unwholesome states leak out of our uh, bodies because that's essentially what I did. I decided to you know not let the impatience leak out into my movements, which created the the slower movements and so created that kind of movement uh, that was expressive of patience. And so we can do this with kindness, we can do this with love, with any of the wholesome qualities. And so with that intention of cultivating kindness, behave with kindness. There's so many opportunities for this. You know, just driving on the freeway is an opportunity for this. Letting somebody have an easy merge on the freeway. Not closing up the gap if you see somebody with a blinker light coming into your lane. You know, kindness. You know, just... just and, and noticing how you might want to close up that gap, right? So you might want to close up that gap. But then remembering and... Connecting with that intention of kindness and having that action not come out of repression of that grinchiness, but instead come out of the, the desire to cultivate that feeling of connection and caring. And so there's, there's, pl- there's many opportunities for this. Perhaps we could make, I mean, some, some, there were times when I, well, I'll tell the story about the, the, the Safeway Metta Monastery in a moment, but... Um, you know, we could make driving on the freeway be essentially a meta practice in this way of how can I be kind to my fellow drivers here? How can I express that? You know, it's a great opportunity. So that's, that's another way of cultivating metta is to act as though we were feeling kindness and see you know be curious about how does that rebound you know when i when i remember this when i'm on the freeway and i it's like there's 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 a there's a kind of a delight and a kind of a joy in in knowing somebody didn't have to like fight and have stress to get into my lane you know it's like oh that person you know maybe they don't they don't they're not appreciating me but that's okay you know it's like it's just that kindness that, that there's, again, it's not, it's not needing a response, that kind of metta. It's just offering that care and connection. And then there's the, um, a way of cultivating the quality of kindness that's more active even than that. I mean, in, in some ways, well, that's an active behavioral way. I guess we could call that a behavioral way of culti- cultivating metta. Um, and another way is, is more um, the, f- the, the practice of metta itself. And that is, again, it's using intention. But what it uses, the, the practice of metta uses, the practice of cultivating loving kindness as a meditation practice, uses thoughts to help us connect with that intention. And so I was just speaking about how we can use action to help us connect with that intention. And then the Buddha also encouraged us to use thought. 
often he thought us to use, taught us, uh, encouraged us to use thought to reflect on how we are. And then the, the commentaries really codified and formalized this metta practice where we um, bring somebody into our minds. I mean, the Buddha's, the Buddha's encouragement of metta practice is very broad. He says we should reflect, you know, may all beings be at ease, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none, the great and the mighty, medium, short or small. He wants us to think this. May all beings be at ease. The seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, may all beings be at ease. And so he encouraged us to use thoughts. And then uh, the, the commentaries took that to um, a little more formal way of using thought and a formal way of practicing this. And um, uh, I'll just briefly review this uh, today. And that is um, you know, bringing somebody into your mind. And often we're encouraged to start with ourselves. You know, look at self first. Look at, are we... Can we have a, a feeling of well-wishing for ourselves? So maybe bringing ourselves to mind and then thinking thoughts of goodwill for ourselves. May I be happy? May I be healthy, safe, at ease? So, so using thoughts here, using bringing thoughts, to bringing a person into mind and using thoughts, thinking kind thoughts about that person. Wishing them well. So for another person, bringing a, a person into your mind, envisioning them perhaps, or, you know, depending on, on uh, how, how uh, visual you are. Sometimes I found it easier to imagine as if I was sitting with them, kind of the feeling of that person being with that person rather than an actual image of them. So I had more of a kinesthetic sense of connection with people than a visual sense. And so I would just you know, pretend I was sitting with the person with my eyes closed, like that friend. Oh, close my eyes and pretend that friend sitting in front of me. It's like, whew, I get a feeling of that person being there. And then expressing those wishes. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe and at ease. Now this, um, so this is expressing using thoughts to connect to the way, the way my sense of how this works and what I've seen in my own practice is when I connect to that as an intention. It's not a demand. It's not like an affirmation. It's not saying, I am happy. I am healthy. It's connecting to that wish. May I be happy and healthy. May I be happy and healthy. And so we may not be happy and healthy in the moment, but it's, it's pointing to that. This is the direction that I'd like to go. It's kind of that, that movement. Like to cultivate this quality in the heart. So that, um, that connection to that intention. For me in, in metta practice, I, I did an extended period of metta practice at one point, and um, one time I was... Uh, feeling really grinchy. I, had, I was in the middle of a, of a retreat doing 
lots of mental practice and I was in the dining room and I was feeling really grinchy and kind of forgotten about the metta practice. I was kind of wallowing in my grinchiness and my misery. And at some point I remembered, oh, right, I'm supposed to be doing metta practice. And it's like, well, okay, you know, I can't feel it right now, but I can at least connect to that intention. And so I just started wishing myself, may I be happy? May I be healthy? You know, not denying, again, this is, this is uh, kind of connected in a way to what I talked about before. I wasn't denying that I felt that way. And what, that I felt grinchy. But what I did with each time is kind of like, I kept track of my body, I kept track of my mind. And with each time I made that wish, I'd check in, you know, well, how did the heart respond to that? How was it to make that wish? And so it was a very embodied kind of check-in. It's like, oh, make that wish. Oh, may I be happy. And how was it? And it felt to me like with each time, initially, at, at the beginning, the very beginning, it, there, it wasn't too obvious, but not very long. It was like, it was like I, I had found this little tiny ember of kindness in my heart. And each time I made that wish, it was like breathing on that, gently breathing, blowing on that ember. And within like 20 or 30 minutes, I was so happy. It was again, a surprising thing to see how just that intention, connecting with that intention and checking in. And how is it landing to make that wish? To me, that's a big part of this formal metta practice. Not simply pumping wishes out there, but seeing how does it feel to make that wish? Because that's where we connect with and find the quality of metta. And as you know, beginning to feel those embers, beginning to feel that quality. It's like each time it, it was felt, it was like, oh, there it is. And oh, there it is. It just like, it grew and grew because of the mindfulness. You know, the mindfulness of these beautiful qualities just makes them blossom. So there's this formal mental practice, which, you know, we start with ourselves and then expand to a friend and a benefactor, somebody who's helped us, a friend, and then move on to a neutral person, somebody that we don't know well, and then to a difficult person. And so through this practice, we begin to touch into all the different kinds of relationships we have with people and begin to see where the rub is. You know, with friends, we'll see the rub around, you know, oh, may you be happy. Oh, but they did that thing. You know, we'll see these things in our minds. And this is, you know, one of, one of um, my teachers, Guy Armstrong, when I was doing the intensive pra- metta practice, he, he said, you know, the metta practice is kind of like running a metta magnet over your heart. It's going to draw everything that's not metta out of your heart. And you'll see it. And so it's not like a mistake that you're seeing this stuff, that you're seeing that grinchiness. That's how the metta practice works. It's like, oh, okay, good. I can then just, you know, have some kindness for myself for all of these, you know, non-metta filings that are being pulled to the surface. And then we can also explore this more formal kind of metta practice in an informal way. And this is what I was talking about before when I talked about the Safeway being my metta monastery for a period of time. You know, I, I chose this because I noticed, you know, something, I guess, about being in stores. Some can bring out some of my 
uh, grinchy things. And so uh, I decided that I would... And I also began to notice there was a lot of suffering in the, in, in the Safeway, you know. Kids yelling and screaming and moms having trouble and, you know, people being hurried and rushed and people being, like, frustrated by long lines. And, you know, so there's a lot of suffering in the, in the grocery store. And so I, I began with this, just a wish for everybody that I saw, may you be happy, you know, just simple. May you have ease often was, was a more appropriate feeling wish you know may you have some ease and uh you know i just started this and at that point i actually worked in a in a building that um was right next to a safeway and so i was in that safeway a couple times a day you know going to get my lunch or going to get you know a drink later in the day or something so i was in the safeway quite a bit and you know remembering became easy for me it became easy to to uh to have this kind of practice of well-wishing. And, uh, you know, it was, it became so much fun to go to that Safeway. Just so delightful to have that place and that feeling of, you know, people would smile and say hi, and, you know, it's like you, you actually end up getting a lot more than you give in some ways. That was another practice I did for a while is, I just, if I met somebody, and again, it, was, it wasn't necessarily feeling a connection, but I would just practice a smile as genuinely as I could when I was taking a walk around the neighborhood. I just practiced smiling with people. When they chose to met my gaze, I would smile. And, you know, smiles are contagious. And they would often smile back. And I would just get these waves of delight receiving their smile. And so again, I just like the, the, the delight and benefit of that kind of connection became so clear to me as I started paying attention to it. So um, any comments or questions? There's a few minutes. Um, yeah. And, and do use the mic. Well, in my experience, sometimes when people hang on to painful experiences, it's because it's a point of navigation for them. And then without that painful experience, they just don't know where they are uh, because it's uh, the, they prefer the pain they know to the pain they don't know. And it's the, that sort of the freedom is of being without it is almost vertigo this is absolutely the case you know and i saw that with myself too you know that it takes in some ways a kind of a leap of faith to let go of what i know to to land in the unknown and so you know there can be you know when we see other people doing that you know having seen it having seen it for ourselves how hard it is to let go of the the way we're holding on to things you know, as we, as we learn, as we, as we begin to explore it for ourselves, we see the benefit of letting go. We, we begin to taste the, 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 that stepping into the unknown begins to reveal itself to be really helpful. And so we begin to taste that. But the, uh, you know, when we see other people hanging on and acting out of that, 
you know, there can be kind of a sense of, oh, of course, that's hard. It's hard to let go. And, you know, they haven't perhaps had exposure to some of the understanding that might help them to have that faith to step into a different direction. Yeah. Is uh, the phrase uh, wishing harm a good synonym for ill will? And because it just occurred to me because it seems more active than the phrase ill will. Um, uh, you know, there's the, the, the wise intention has two, three components to it. One is non-ill will and one is non-harm. And so the wishing for harm falls more in that other one. Uh, you know, ill will, you know, it, it, it might just be, um, you know, not wanting them to have things they like, you know, that, that, that not necessarily that they be harmed, but just that, you know, it, it can be a little subtler. Like, you know, the ill will of not wanting somebody to merge, have an easy merge there, because there's a little ill will in the mind, you know, that, that, that maybe a little greed of wanting to, you know, not, not let them in. So there's, a, there's, a, there's potentially a little ill will operating there that's, that's um, not quite wanting them to be harmed. So I would say, um, yeah, I, I think non-ill will is subtler than non-harm. And so that, that, but it's useful to notice that wish for harm, you know, to the wish, because that's, a, and I'll talk about that when I return from teaching at the month-long at Spirit Rock, I'll be back away for the month, but we'll, we'll shift into talking about the third kind of, of, uh, of uh, intention, the, the non-harming. But, but see if you can begin to notice the distinction between wishing harm and just basically not wishing well. You know, that's kind of what the ill will is, is not wishing well. Yeah. And we need to stop. So thank you all.